Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 53 of our podcast, as always. My name is David Noe. It hasn't changed since the last episode. And I am here in the vomitorium with um, Jeff Winkle. What nice pause there. You have to kind of rem- remember my name. Trying, no, I was trying to insert an adjective. I was going to say my good friend, longtime travel, com- but I just, you know... Just I phoned it in. Dropped it. Yeah. Wrinkle. Yeah, listeners, you need to be aware that Dr. Noe over there across the table came in in some kind of foul mood. I don't know what's going on, but um, I'm hoping that by the end of this, we can, we can lighten don't things bet. up. Don't bet on it. No, don't bet? All right. No, so, there's some kind of a miasma that's clinging to me. Okay. That and insect repellent. That, both of those things. Yes. All right. All a right. Nice, so, a nice mix. But I, th- I just thought the listeners should be aware. If um if uh, if the if the show goes down a particular dark road, this are you is about probably f- why? Are you about finished? I'm done. Go okay. ahead, please. You get the shout out, and I, I have to say I'm glad that I don't have to do that this time. Really? Got it. Yes, really. Yeah, uh, I will happily take the shout out this week. The shout out this week goes to uh, Jen Coles, who uh, was a student of mine in several of my classes at uh, my current institution. Uh, she's earned a special place in my heart. She's been a great student. She's she's followed me from class to class. Um, great artist. Huge lover of the humanities, uh, a real uh, kind of passion for learning and literature. And um, the first year I was at this institution, the first semester was really tough. You know, trying to, to change change everything, develop new courses. It was very very stressful for you. You're for saying. me, yes. Okay. And in the midst of that, she uh, was taking a pottery class, and she brought me this wonderful, beautiful coffee mug that she made. A pottery class. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Right. And. Um, it made all the difference. Hmm. You know, I, it sits there on my shelf. I don't use it for coffee. It is an object of uh, of art. Yes. And but that really kind of turned things around for me. And so I owe her a debt. And hmm. um, and she. And, and so here you're repaying a little bit of it. Yes, exactly say. right. So yes. honoring those who have honored you. That's right. So I'm a big Jen fan. And, yes. And, uh, so uh, and she listens to the podcast. Thank you for listening, Jen. Yep. You know, if I were the kind of guy that could be cheered up, that is the <laughs> thing that would cheer me up. So nice job, Jen. Yes. So who gets the opening quote? Is that you also, Winkle? I'll take it. All right, yes. go for it. This comes from uh, the late, great Ch- Charles Siegel, uh, Chuck to his friends, I believe, uh, from an uh, article he wrote back in 1990 called Dreams and Poets in Lucretius. He writes, Accounting for dreams is central to Lucretius's ethical purpose because they feed our fears about the afterlife and about monstrous creatures like centaurs and chimeras. Like all mental phenomena, however, they have a rational explanation. All bodies are continually throwing off an external film of atoms. These impinge on the anima through the pores of the body as we sleep and set the fine sensitive soul atoms into motion, thus creating the visions and the sensations that we experience as dreams. The same process also accounts uh, for waking visions, which Lucretius frequently pairs with dream vision. Interesting. So So we're not going to really talk, we're not going to talk specifically about Lucretius's dream theory uh, today, but I, I like that quote. Uh, because it was very specific, it gets us to kind of that very specific level of materialism. Okay. That, that, you know, even dreams can have a materialist explanation. I see. Yes. So there's nothing that can't be explained materially. Exactly. So to return to the central portion of the quote, all bodies are continually throwing off an external film of atoms. Yeah, it sounds a little gross. What do you think of that? Well, um, I mean, I guess... It's an argument for frequent showers, isn't it? <laughs> is it? Right, yeah. If you're, if you're sweating or, you know, you, if you got dry skin, yeah. So the soul lies within, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the anima. And through the pores of the body, as I sleep, these external films of atoms, they come back in and they impinge on my sensitive soul atoms, setting them into motion. That's what Lucretius says. And then I have dreams. Yes. Right. So the, again, the idea that kind of this constant motion uh, of atoms, of things kind of crashing into each other, having these various kinds of effects that, you know, the uh, the um, uneducated rubes mistake for something spiritual or divine. Hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Yes. So, what are we going to bring to our listeners this week? Well, we're gonna we're we're gonna plowing our way through the De Rerum Natura. We're yeah. Gonna, we're gonna get to explain more of kind of how Lucretius' materialist view of the universe um, explains everything for him and mm-hmm. but most importantly getting rid of the fear of death 
Right. Which we talked about a little bit last week. Okay. Yep. So there are six books in De Rerum Natura. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is the penultimate episode, isn't it? Yes. I think uh, so. Next week, we'll wrap this up. Yes, we'll wrap it up. We're not going to go like we did with the Odyssey. No. Maybe that went a little too long. Maybe. I mean, we, we're still kind of learning the learning the art form here. We were learning things here? Yes, exactly right. Okay. Ourselves and our listeners. Hopefully. Okay. Yep. All right. So let's get right into then enough of these preliminary dancing aroundings. Okay. Book two. Book two. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I'm trying to remember last week, I think we, we started to talk a little bit about some of the themes in, in book two. Yes. We went into book one pretty heavy, mm-hmm. right? We talked about the fear of religion, Iphigenia at Aulis. That's right. That's right. We talked about how um, Lucretius had to invent words for the Latin language because it was lacking the kind to express philosophical ideas. Mm-hmm. Talked about Memmius and some of his love habits. And he is the, the patron and addressee of the poem. Right. We also talked about how it, uh, perhaps this text was meant to be uh, an attempt to convert right. Memmius to Epic- Epicureanism. Right. right. We talked about the lovely painting by Botticelli of how Venus is trying to lull Mars to sleep through love yes. so that the Romans will start, stop excuse me, bashing each other's heads in. Right. Right, right, right. But I thought this week we would start um, right at the beginning of book two. Sounds good. And would you be willing to read some hexameters? I could. Yes. You think that's going to cheer me up? I think it, <laughs> read Latin always cheers you up. Come All on. right. All right. Okay, here goes. Sed nihil dulciest bene quam munita tenere, edita doctrina sapientum templa serena, despicarunda queas aleos passim quevideirre, erdra rat queviam palantis quaerere vitae. Certa ringenio contendere nobilitate, noctes atque dies niti praestante labore, ad sumas e mergeropes re rumque potiri. Ah, very nice. Now, don't you feel a little bit better? I feel a little bit better. Yes, exactly. You're, a little bit. Man, you're rolling those R's, which I've never been able to do. It's impressive. It took me a long time to learn how to trill those R's. We, like late nights in front of the mirror? I practiced kind of... for 15 years, honestly, and that's... I still can't do it as well as my 10-year-old daughter. Really? She can just, out of the box? Just... Which is another thing that's bothering me about this day. <laughs> Just showing up by your ten-year-old no, daughter. I got no autoroxia. Oh man. man! All right. So tell us what these lines mean, please. All right. So uh, is this Smith? This is the Smith translation. Okay, let's right. have it. Um, but nothing is more blissful than to occupy the heights effectively fortified by the teaching of the wise, tranquil sanctuaries from which you can look down upon others and see them wandering everywhere in their random search for the way of life, competing for intellectual eminence, disputing about rank, and striving night and day with prodigious effort to scale the summit of wealth and to secure power. O minds of mortals, blighted by your blindness, amid what deep darkness and daunting dangers life's little day is passed. Oh, yeah. That's like a rebuke. It is a rebuke. No wonder I'm so crabby. Right. And some nice uh, nice alliteration there from our yes. translator at mm-hmm. the end there. That's a Martin Ferguson Smith. Right. So again, a reminder of what we were talking about last time is that you know, ep- uh, at the heart of Epicureanism is this removal of oneself from public life and, um, and finding ataraxia away from the crowd and seeing kind of the meaninglessness and striving for power and position. Mm-hmm. Competing for intellectual eminence. Disputing about rank, striving night and day with prodigious effort to scale the summit of wealth and to secure power. It's also meaningless. Yeah. We just need to be like the Epicureans. Right, right, right. Right. And um, I'm also reminded of the, the day and age in which he wrote this stuff, where there was lots of that striving going on um, in, in increasingly violent kinds of ways. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So what's the cure? What's How do we get out of this? What does Epicurus suggest we do to say goodbye to all this pointless competition. Well, at least part of it is kind of understanding kind of how everything works Mm. and understanding the things that um, are what seem to be kind of taken for granted by most of society, um, recognizing a lot of that stuff as simply false. And from there, you can kind of, you can cultivate this, I don't know, inner peace. Maybe. Yes. This uh, ridding oneself of useless desires. Yes. Something like that. So I'm going to quote a band from the 90s here. Oh, yeah. This is Chagall Guevara. Maybe you don't know this band. Uh, Steve Taylor, um, mm. how does it go? Um, all of us Nero's fanning ourselves, uh, damp with the sweat of regret, just killing time with our eyes to the skies, waiting on science, our savior. Oh, I've never heard that song. That's before. a good, that's a good line, isn't it? That is a great line. Mm-hmm. Great. What's, what's the name of the song? The name of the song is uh, murder in the big house. Hmm. I like, yep. the, I like that title too. Yeah. Well, maybe we should just cancel the episode and <laughs> listen to the album. <laughs> All right. of us Nero's fanning ourselves damp with a sweat of regret. And you got the Roman yes. reference there. Just killing time with our eyes to the skies, 
waiting on science or savior. So Epicurus says, that's going to do it. We, yeah. un- we understand how the world works. It's just a materialistic um, hodgepodge of atoms in the void. Right. We get them together, and then we're going to get autoroxia. Right. This is the part of uh, that, I, again, it personally, I, it doesn't ultimately kind of connect with me. I think we were talking last time. I think there's a lot that I think for, for both you and I, there's aspects of Epicureanism that are very attractive, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that idea of, of um, a friendship. A literary retreat. Yeah, a literary retreat. But when it comes down to this, the kind of the, ex, the explanation of all things and looking for the, the, the endless human search for meaning, this is where personally I find there's lots of gaps in his, mm-hmm. his theory. But let's, let's, let's work through it. Let's see if we can find, okay. get, get down to the bottom. Okay. Yeah. Should we talk about atoms? Let's do that. Okay. Up and atoms. Up, <laughs> up and atom. Um, so maybe we should just read uh, the pertinent section here. Yeah. Can and, I do that or are you going to hog all the good stuff? No, it's all yours. Please all right. take it. Yep. To grasp more firmly the restless movement of all the particles of matter, remember that the whole universe has no bottom and thus no place where the ultimate particles could settle. Space is infinite and measureless. Carl Sagan, is that my voice there? (laughs) Billions and billions. Being of boundless extent in every direction on every side, as I proved by sound argument in the course of a lengthy demonstration. Since this is an established fact, it is certain that the ultimate particles are allowed no rest anywhere in the unfathomable void. Rather, they are harried by incessant and various movement, some rebounding to considerable distances after they have clashed, others leaving short interspaces when they have been jerked back from collision. This is a good translation. It is very good. And all those that are concentrated in closer union and rebound only a very short distance apart, entangled by the interlacement of their own shapes, form the basis of tough rock, the bulk of stern steel, and other such substances. Right. So it's these falling, careening, smashing of atoms together that can explain every... um, Every type of matter that you can encounter. Every kind of interaction, every kind of matter. Right. But he still, he, he never gives us a prime mover. Can this explain, if, if I may just have a parenthetical moment? Please. Can this explain the fine dust that's at the bottom of my uh, bag of breakfast cereal when I've <laughs> gotten through all the rest of it? So like, like, like each of the Cheerios is like an atom? Each of the Cheerios have been smashing <laughs> together in that bag because there's no ultimate bottom, right? As we heard in this quote, right. the universe has no bottom and no place where the ultimate particles could settle. So they're right. just pounding and grinding together all the time. And when I get to the bottom of the bag, yeah. the Honey Nut Cheerios, it's just a fine pottery dust. They're just cereal atoms floating around down there. I like that visual image. It helps me understand this better, but it causes me to wonder, how violent are you being with a box of Cheerios? You're just like angrily no. shaking that thing out every morning? I go to the pantry, I yeah. remove the cereal box, and it's not, not my doing that all this stuff has coagulated at the bottom. Right. There's other people who are handling this box. not going to name names. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Well, I think we're, we're, getting, we're getting to the, to the source of your disgruntlement no, today. No, no, no. Okay. no, no. I right. watched this. Um, I watched this. I think I mentioned it to you. Um, History of Food or something oh, like yeah, that yeah, yeah. on uh, the, the Learning Channel. I can't remember what the title was, but mm-hmm. they were talking about uh, Post and Kellogg and the individuals who not too far south of here right. invented breakfast cereal. And Battle I think, Creek. Yes. And I think they described it as find a product that is ridiculously cheap to make because mm-hmm. it's just, you know, animal fodder <laughs> and sell it at a high price. <laughs> It's brilliant. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but no, uh, Lucretius would say you can't do that because you're just striving for filthy lucre, mm-hmm. trying to climb the ladder of success, that golden ladder. You should be focused on science. Exactly. Now, I'm, I'm going to, I have a question, but I'm, I'm going to save You're going to get your own parenthetical digression? No, 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 no. Um, I wanted to, to talk about here that um, the aspects of Lucretius's ideas as not being all that original. No. So his be, materialism is not original. No, right. So if this goes this goes back to uh, the pre-Socratics. That's right. Leucippus and Democritus are the two big guys. Right. But even guys like um, Anaxagoras, um, these were guys that were, you know, postulating that we can explain the makeup of the world without resorting to the talk of the gods. You know, the, the idea like, el- uh, yeah. like prime elements, air, yeah, earth, but water. Anaxagoras was a theist. And Exagoras was a theist. You know, Thales said that, you know, um, water was the main substance. Right, right. I'm, all I'm saying is that these ideas about, uh, these materialist ideas were there 
long before, hundreds of years. They've been in the bottom of the cereal bowl for a long Long time, time. (laughs) just lingering around there. That's true. But even in among pre-Socratics, Democritus and Leucippus, they were standouts for their materialism. Gotcha. The the other guys generally weren't materialists. Uh, And Exagoras, I think, was ridiculed because he said that the Peloponnese, Mm -hmm. that massive peninsula, um, the sun is probably the size of the Peloponnese. Mm. People said that's absurd. Look, it's this, it's the same size as my fist. It's I tiny. hold my fist up to it. You're tiny sun, right? Yeah, it's the size of the Peloponnese. Now he was off by you know massive uh, degrees, but he, he was a lot closer than the fist. People. Closer than anybody else, <laughs> right? <laughs> so Democritus and Leucippus, they're the original materialists, right? And Epicurus is right there with them, right? So th- I just wanted our listeners to be a. Uh, to recognize that this didn't just kind of descend on Lucretius and he kind of dropped this bombshell. He's, no, it's entirely derivative. He's standing on the shoulders of other of other giants. Entirely right? derivative. Right. So even the 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 term uh, atom mm-hmm. atom. Right. Uh, we associate that with Democritus. Yes. Who uh, in, who uh, imagined kind of all of matter to be kind of this endless strip, mm-hmm. and you you cut down that strip until you get smaller and smaller pieces to the point where you. At home, you not cut. You find something that's uncuttable. Uncuttable, and that's right. your prime. It's your prime building block. So you want a little bit. It's it's your your basic one dot Lego. Right. right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Your one dot Lego. You have some of those stuck in your foot this oh, morning. Oh my gosh! You know, walking through the like <laughs> like getting up in the middle of the night. And walking Don't the ever house. walk through a dark house at night if you have children. It's true. It's yes. true. Exactly. Needles. So you, you want a little bit of the etymology of Adam? Yeah. Let's talk about that. Okay. Should we share that? Yeah. Okay. So tomao. Yep. To cut, or I guess. The Brits say tomeo. Oh, really? Right. Some, I don't like that. Some say tomao, some say tomeo. <laughs> Let's just call the whole thing exactly. off. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so tomao is to cut, yes. right? You can find it in such words as, oh, I don't know, appendectomy. Yes. Right. Cut out the appendix. Any lot, Lots of surgeries which involve re- permanently removing things. Yeah, the right? tomas, right? The appendectomy, the lobectomy, the et cetera. Yep. Uh, so the tomas, if it's ah tomas, there's the nice alpha privative. Which negates it. Yes. yes. No cutting off, like ambrosia, the brosia's death, the ah, no death. No death. Drink of immortality. Right. Another thing that I wanted to bring up in terms of derivative is it, his idea of kind of atoms moving around and falling and smashing into each other and producing other things. It, it reminded me of uh, kind of Plato's idea of this idea that, you know, um, there's a perfected form of everything we see around us out there in the in the ether, in the transcendent Correct. realm. Now, that's something, of course, that Lucretius would reject. That but, there's anything immaterial, right, you're saying. Right, right. But this idea that um, as kind of those, the forms kind of filter down into the kind of the broken world, the kind of the through, through a glass darkly world that we live mm-hmm. in, uh, what we wind up with are things that kind of, they reflect those forms. They're twisted, they're broken, they're fallen. Right. Right. So this desk right here, it expresses deskness. Of the kind of the ultimate desk that's out there in the in the in in the form, probably still in its original packaging. Exactly right. Yeah, from IKEA. Yeah, well, right. I don't know about that. But lots of bubble wrap around that thing. Lots of bubble wrap, so it can't be harmed. Right, right, right. Um, and this one participates in the perfect deskness, which exists in another realm. Yes, beyond the ether. Right, right, right. But I, it reminded me of the idea of kind of things kind of filtering down, kind of falling down from heaven and, be, and becoming and becoming something else that. That you know, Lucretius, I think, would reject a lot, if not most, of what Plato had to say um, in terms of you know notions of the soul, notions mm-hmm. of the divine. But I wonder, even even here, he's still kind of building upon what was maybe kind of a a common idea of kind of where the universe came from. I see. Yeah. If I, I'll express it in another way, okay. which I think is a consonant with what you're saying, and and you can call a red flag on me. Yeah. Throw a red flag on me if you want to. I think that what both philosophers are after is the discrepancy between how we think things ought to be and how they really are. Mm. So so mm-hmm. Plato's discrepancy is explained by well you've never here's his classic example you've never seen a perfect circle, right? The definition of a circle is a series of points all of which are equidistant from another point. Right. But as soon as you draw the circle on the board, right? Your line has width. And so you've never seen an actual circle. Right. So how do you know what it is? Well, this is from the Mino and other places. Because you have in your mind, stamped on it from your time in another world, you have the conception of perfect circle. Just like each of us were born with the conception of perfect desk. And let me say, this is not it. No, this is not. This is not. Far from it. No. (laughs) Lucretius, similarly, and the materialists generally, 
they have a sense that things are not in some ways how they ought to be. What's the explanation for that? Ah, yes. The explanation is atoms falling through a void, colliding, leaving bits of dust in the bottom of your cereal. Wouldn't you say that Lucretius would, would even reject the notion of ought to be? Yeah, I was wondering about that even uh, as I said it. But, I, but you know, I, I, that's a really good... I like the way you broke that down and it kind of and you know, teased out the, the differences between the two. Mm-hmm. Right. All philosophies set out to solve some kind of problem. Right. Maybe the problem that Epicureanism is seeking to solve is different than that of Platonism. For Epicureans, it's people are miserable because uh, they don't understand the science. Yes. And the science is that their souls are just going to dissolve, you know, into a little tiny heap of soul atoms at the end. Right. They don't need to fear punishment. Right, right. You know, that's good. Now, and and I, you know, I'm sympathetic with kind of this broader idea that knowledge or mastery over something brings um, reduces stress. Yes, right? you know, brings up a piece of a kind. But Th- this is this is why your Legos come with instructions. Exactly. Right. Right. There's something very satisfying when you put the Millennium Falcon together. I suppose. And you, it sits there on the shelf, and it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing. But what about the prime mover, Jeff? There's the, no prime mover. The primum mobile, the guy that hits the first cue ball, that gets the second cue ball, that gets the third one, and so on and so forth. It, it, Lucretius does not give us that 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 guy. So it's always been in motion eternally. I suppose so. It's just kind of uh, whirling around endlessly. Right. Now, you met, I think you mentioned last week that this is uh, maybe in line with Aristotle's idea that the, the universe has always been here. Yes, it's right. eternal. Right. No but, beginning, no ending. Right. That's also... I see a lot of uh, kind of overlap with... Um, a lot of Eastern thought here too, mm. like uh, in Jainist thought. Um, mm. it, you encounter the Jains? No. You know? um, J A I N. Yes. Okay. Right. Uh, Jains believe that the universe has always been here. There's mm-hmm. no beginning and no end. So um, now you've been teaching some classes on world religions, right? Fascinating. Which has brought you into contact with Hinduism and Buddhism and other right. things that previously, uh, as with me, presently were f- somewhat unfamiliar. Yes, and what immediately struck me was is how much they have in common, lots of the, these ideas with Stoicism, Epicureanism, lots of these philosophies kind of coming out of mm-hmm. the Greek world in the in the 4th century on. Um, well, you know the tradition of Pythagoras, right? That Pythagoras at some point in his career was influenced by the gymnophysists, mm. right? The naked philosophers of India. Right. I, <laughs> sorry. I don't know how much influence a naked what is philosopher. What, 7th grade? <laughs> You know, parts of us never leave seventh grade. All right, right all right. right. Sorry, but if a ni- naked philosopher showed up at my door, I don't know how much I'd want to be influenced okay. by Okay. Right, okay. <laughs> Pythagoras at some point traveled east. Yes. That's the legend. That's the story. And he was influenced by these uh, philosophers who hmm. had were bringing ideas like we were discussing. So, and that's that's the, he's the link or Supposed- travels like that. Supposedly. Okay. It's yeah. not provable unless we suddenly discover some unexpected evidence. Right. But it's long been the suspicion. There's that, uh, have you heard about that, um, this notion of, you know, the fifth century BC, not only as kind of an extraordinary century because we see, you know, the, the height of, you know, classical Athens and all of these, these firsts in the arts and in architecture and philosophy, but you see a similar kind of explosion happening in the East as well. I mean, that's the era where uh, kind of Jainism comes into its own, Buddhism comes into its own. We see, uh, it's, there's something about that that era, not just in Greece, but elsewhere, mm. that there's this kind of intellectual and spiritual and artistic explosion. Mm. But whether that's coming from a kind of you know, cross-pollination of cultures, I mean, who, who knows? But it's, it's fascinating. Alien influence, perhaps? Oh, always a good thing to re- rely on argument upon. Yes. Right. Yeah. So did you want to talk more about the prime mover? I mean, we're, you see that as a kind of a, uh, a chink in the armor of Lucretius' argument. It's, it, does he need to explain it for what he's trying to do? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, but this is an area of interest to me, quite a lot of interest. I'm interested in Aquinas' arguments for God's existence. Mm-hmm. And uh, I read a book just a couple, I don't know, finished up three or four months ago, um, a fellow named Spitzer, uh, New Proofs for the Existence of God. Mm-hmm. A brilliant book, a really, really fine book, which deals with uh, updates to uh, Aquinas' argumentation. Mm-hmm. And... Um, from what I've read, the scientific evidence for the eternality of the universe is weak. Okay. And the scientific evidence, not even from a theistic perspective, of uh, the Big Bang and the genesis of the cosmos and mm-hmm. so forth, points to a, a pretty definite starting point. Okay. Quite conclusively. Right. So, and, but Lucretius would Deny answer that. or dodge the question by saying, there's no need for a beginning. There's no need for an ending. This is, it's not even worth considering. Yes. And his mind 
journeys, right, his mind experiments, his thought experiments have shown him that everything is atoms falling through a void per- right. perpetually. Perpetually. And that's conclusive. Okay. All right. Well, so speaking of, of God or, or gods, um, Lucretius tells us that there's no need for them. And it's that, well, Lucretius believes that there are gods, right? Mm-hmm. But they're just kind of off doing their own thing. They have fine god atoms, so fine that they're not visible. Right. right. They're material. The gods materially exist, although he has no explanation for their genesis. Right. They've always been there just like we and the universe have always been there. But human beings are much better off not even dealing with them. Yes, that's right. Okay. After all, if you read Plato's Euthyphro, what do you learn about the gods? You learn that they're savage, Mm. right? After all, Kronos ate his children. Right. And uh, Zeus can't uh, exercise any self-control when it comes to his amorous adventures. Right. So why would you want to worship gods like that? Right. Or the uh, Dionysus as he's presented in the Bacchae too. Yes. He comes and destroys uh, a city out of this petty argument about family honor. Correct. Right? Yes, that's right. For a, for a class that I'm teaching this fall, uh, I was reading Athanasius's uh, On the Incarnation, and he says, um, you know, what, what have your gods accomplished? Well, mm. Dionysus teaches people how to get drunk. Mm. Is, is that a big accomplishment? Right, right, right. Said with a lot of dripping sarcasm. Yes. And so um, Lucretius attacks the Homeric view of the gods, the gods as they are in Homer, who are kind of a joke, honestly. We've yes. talked about that on the mm-hmm. podcast a lot. And the substitution is that the, the gods of, of Epicurus are good Epicureans. Hmm. They're off in their divine coteries, reading divine literature, drinking divine wine, which is probably Pinot Noir or a good cab. It's definitely not Manischewitz or uh, exactly. <laughs> something that's too sweet. Right, right, right. You with me? I'm with you. All right. Yep. yep. So they're, they're off in their own garden, right? Correct. not striving for power and trying to one-up each other. No, if you yeah. had that much power, right? You had the power of immortality. You were never going to be snuffed out or annihilated. Why would you spend time worrying about the petty concerns and trivialities of mortals? Right. Right. So when I'm driving down the road, right, and someone cuts me off, you know, I pray to the true God and I ask him, you know, to help me control my anger or not get into an accident. Lucretius would say, you're foolish. Right. The gods don't care about your petty little concerns. Right, right, right. Now, it's interesting. I'm, I just started teaching another myth class, and a question that often comes up from students is, you know, why do, when we talk like about hero stories, you know, why do they, why do some heroes care so much about these particular kind of heroes? Like, you know, mm-hmm. Why would they even You mean bother? about mortals, you're Mor- saying? Mortals, right. You know, why does Athena care so much of, about Odysseus? Yeah. Right? And, and one of the ways I've always answered that is, is that in many ways, the gods' immortality makes their existence pointless, right? It, it's makes kind of, their own existence, their own existence Yes, yeah. um, kind of ridiculous. And so they have to invest in these mortal characters who are kind of facing you know, the, the edge of their own mortality to kind of give them meaning by proxy. I think that's a very clever and perssuasive explanation. I don't know whether the ancients would have gone for that. No, you don't think so? Why, well, why I don't not? know. So from our perspective, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense because we have the sense that the limitation and the mortality of our lives is one of the things that gives our lives meaning, right? Every mm-hmm. day, every moment is precious because they're numbered, right? They're counted. Right. right. But for the ancients, I don't I don't know if they would have seen it that way. I, I think they had a more visceral reaction to the existence of the gods. They're just powerful individuals that control our lives. And I don't know if they would have speculated in that way. Well, it, well let me put it a slightly a different way. Don't you think that you know, Athena, by watching Odysseus accomplish what he does in the Odyssey, mm-hmm. take back his island, kill the suitors, doesn't she get claim some glory out of that? Oh, for sure. Okay. She has vicarious pleasure. Pleasure. Okay. In the accomplishments of her of her favorite. So maybe maybe not so much uh, she's deriving meaning. Maybe that's too that's yes. a bridge too far. Yes. Okay. All right. And I, f- I think that is absolutely what Homer even says. She loved him because he's like her. Right. Uh, and there's some resonance there with a you know an Orthodox Christian understanding, right? Mm-hmm. Augustine says, "God loves in us." what remains of what he made, right? Mm. He made us in his image, so we still resemble him. He, right. he loves in us the things that he made of us, right? Right, right, right. The rest of it, he's pretty displeased with, but yes. you know, what remains, he likes. Yeah, very, very good. 
Hey, let me read a bit of uh, from the Smith translation uh, uh, what Lucretius has to say about the gods. I'll grant that. Okay. Is this book two? This is, yeah, we're still in book two. Okay. Yes. Has my mood improved at all? I think I'm sensing a little bit of lightning here. All right. You're not, a, you're not at the level where you're about ready to break out into song. No. I don't think we're going to get there today. But... Lightning or shortening? Lightening. Light, lightening. Yes. Okay. okay. Once you obtain a firm grasp of these facts, you see that nature is her own mistress and is exempt from the oppression of arrogant despots accomplishing everything by herself spontaneously and independently and free from the jurisdiction of the gods. For, and here I call to witness the sacred, peacefully tranquil minds of the gods, who pass placid days in a life of calm, who has the power to rule the entirety of the immeasurable, who has the power to hold in his hand the strong reins needed to govern the unfathomable, who has the power to revolve all the skies together and fumigate with ethereal fires all the fertile earths, who has the power to be in every place at every time so as to form darkness with the clouds and to shake the serene tracks of the sky with thunder, and then to launch bolts, often demolishing his own temples, or retiring to the deserts for furious practice with the missile that often passes by the guilty and destroys the unoffending and undeserving? Mm. Great lines. A great line. Really powerful. Beautifully system. translated. I think we should talk about them after the break. What do you think? Yes, absolutely. This episode of Ad Nauseam brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing, based in Indianapolis, Indiana, and also Cambridge, Massachusetts, have been bringing for the last 40-plus years attractive, affordable, readable translations to the reader. I can't say enough about Hackett Publishing. I love their stuff. I, I love using them in class. I love reading them on my own. I love the artwork they put on, on the covers. It's, all, it's so good-looking. It's so clever in many ways. Um, Dave, what about you? What about Hackett? How do you like it? But you really like Hackett a lot. I do don't like you? Hackett. I love Hackett. You got that HP tattoo on your deltoid. It's right. It's not Harry Potter. No, it's Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing, yes. Well, I like the same things that you said. Absolutely. I have used their CDC Reeve translation of Plato's Republic. They have Aristotle. They have the Lingua Latina Perse Illustrata that I like so much. I got a new color copy of Roma Eterna, the second hardcover book in the Lingua Latina series. Oh, nice. Beautifully done. Mm -hmm. They have some Shakespeare editions, too, that I'm going to be checking out very soon. They're Blitz Shakespeare editions covering the classical uh, plays, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, Shakespeare wrote, the tragedies. Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra, Coriolanus. Should be some excellent reading. I'm very much looking forward to it. Very, yeah, that's awesome. I, I can't wait to see those. Yeah, I've, I've too, I've used um, Lombardo's Iliad translation, which is that photograph uh, from the Allied boat, Allied yep. boats landing at uh, at Normandy. The Odyssey with the moon landing. The moon landing. I know you're very fond of that one. And my favorite. Your favorite, of course. Is Euripides Bacchae with Elvis Presley on the front. Elvis Presley. Because the Dionysus who comes to town and drives everybody crazy, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it's perfect. So if the listener wants to score for himself or herself some of these great volumes at a great price, what do they need to do? They have to go to hackettpublishing.com. How many T's in there? Uh, two T's. Okay. And uh, they find whatever text you want, put it uh, put it in your your grocery cart. Whatever text, grocery cart whatever text I want? Whatever text they want. Okay, my grocery cart? We're going to do this again? Your your bag. Okay. All right. Shopping receptacle. There we go. Um, and then the coupon code you type in is AN2021. And that gets them 20% off. Hold, hold, hold on. Here. Yes. I, I know this number already, but I'm feigning surprise because it's a big number and it's a little shocking. Yes. What percentage do they say? 20%. Wow. Yep. Wow. And not only that, but free shipping as well. That's incredible. You can't go wrong. Check it out. This episode is also brought to you by Odd Astra Coffee Roasters. Ad Astra Roasters is a veteran-owned specialty coffee roaster located in Hillsdale, Michigan. Founded in Kansas in 2018, Ad Astra Roasters takes its name from the Kansas State motto, Ad Astra per Aspera, to the stars through adversity. Jeff, what's one of your favorite blends that they are they're putting out? Still love the Tenebris. Can't can't get enough of that one. And the Whitney, you, the Whitney, you liking that? I like the Whitney. My wife really likes the Whitney. Ah, all right. kind of a lighter roast, but the Tenebris, the dark roast. Yeah, I, uh, that's the one I keep coming back to. I like that a lot too. The poetry yeah. series is also a really great option for those wanting to read a great poem while drinking even better coffee. So head to oddastraroasters.com, A-D-A-S-T-R-A roasters.com, and get 15%. They, they upped the coupon code. Isn't that nice? That's really nice. 15% off when you put in the coupon code A-N-A-A. -A. What is that? That's ad nauseum, ad astra, A-N-A-A. -A. Put it in at checkout and check it out. And finally, this episode also brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Helwig and his, uh, his team out there in Portland, Oregon, 
have come up with a way for you to brew in your kitchen excellent coffee, better coffee than you're going to find down at the Bagel Barn or whatever your local institution is. With one of their machines, the Ratio 6 or the Ratio 8, you can enjoy this stuff in the comfort of your own home every single morning. Uh, Dave, I know you got the Ratio 8. I do. Yes. Did you have some coffee this morning? Of course. Yes. Right. You've been carrying the weight on this ad thus far, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful given my mood and my temperament. (laughs) Really? But the coffee has been delicious all around, all the time. I'm never embarrassed to serve it to anyone. I don't have that scorchy pad. Yeah. Have we mentioned brackish tang lately? I don't think we have, but there's no brackish tang. There is no brackish tang. I think that was developed for astronauts, wasn't it? I believe so, right? That's right. That's actually right. the quality of the coffee too <laughs> instant stuff with dark sparkling crystals yes right none of that anymore none we of that threw it out the window no 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 i have the ratio six uh, brewed the perfect cup this morning you got the stainless steel edition yep also comes in white and black matte yes yep uh, it, it's uh it's a beautiful machine my wife has really kind of taken to it mm-hmm. um and so uh, she'll often accuse me of, of not kind of putting the lid on, no. on properly, right? Mrs. Winkle? She likes the precision of the ratio. So you know, if you can, you have this, this machine, treat it with respect. Yeah. And, and, I, I can see that from you, you know, being a little sloppy, no offense. But okay. I can't, all right, all right, all right, yeah. I can't see Mrs. Winkle bringing down the hammer on you for that. She's oh, she, such a sweet woman. She is a very sweet woman, but she likes her coffee. Coffee is very important to her. Yes. Right. And she's grown to love this machine. She wants it done precisely. So if I don't do it just precisely, mm. I'm, I'm not respecting the machine. I'm not respecting the coffee. I'm not respecting her. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I can see it now. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I have the eight and mine is in the color oyster. What does that even mean? It's, it's, a, a, it's a, a whitish gray. Okay. It matches my cabinets perfectly. Oh, really? Yeah. I chose it for that reason. And nice. it's got the walnut accents, real walnut. It's gorgeous. Now the ratio eight, Mark has had a hard time keeping that in stock. Really? Uh, because it's so popular. It's a little pricier mm-hmm. or um, a little less attainable, I think is the, the term. Uh, than the six, but the the eight's going to be available sooner. We're going to run a special promotional code That's before right. too long on the eight. But what about the six? How can they get the six? They can get the six right now if they go to ratiocoffee.com and they enter the, the uh, code ANCO, right. I believe, and they will get... Um, 15%. 15% off That's the, right. the ratio six. So I have a good friend, you know, I won't mention his name on the air, he lives down in Florida. Just to show you how responsive a ratio is in their customer care, mm-hmm. this friend emailed me and he said, you know, Dave, I'm, I'm trying to buy the ratio six because I love the podcast. I want to support what you guys are doing. I said, thanks so much, person. And uh, he said, but something went awry with my coupon code. I, I think I put it in the grocery basket or something <laughs> like that. And I contacted Mark and I said, hey, person is having a problem here. Can you? And he solved it immediately. Really? So, I mean, not just a great machine, but fantastic customer service. That's excellent. So once again, ratiocoffee.com, coupon code ANCO. You will not regret it. All right, Jeff, as we get back into this, yes. we were before the break talking about the gods. And you read that lovely quote from book two, no need for the gods, who has the power to hold in his hand the strong reins, who has the power to revolve all the skies together, who has the power to be in every place at every time, who controls the British crown, who keeps the metric system down. <laughs> we do. These are the stone cutters. Do you remember? Who... Who made Steve Gutenberg a star? Right. Who keeps back the electric car? Who made Steve Gutenberg a star? We do. We do. That's right. This is the Stonecutters theme song. Right. Starring Patrick Stewart. That's right. From a Simpsons episode. Right. It's like a, a secret society. A secret society to which Homer belonged, right? The Stonecutters Society. Kind of an Illuminati. They're making fun of the Masons. The Masons, right. 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 And exactly. at the end of the big song, the big number, I think that Patrick Stewart says, now let's all get drunk and play ping pong. <laughs> Is that typical Epicureanism? Is that typical uh, Epicurean behavior? I think maybe maybe the ping pong, but not the getting drunk. Well, that's the caricature uh, of Epicureans. It's a lot of drunkenness, but I think they enjoyed their wine. Sure. Just not to excess. Right. There you go. That's what I'm saying. So why not unbridled hedonism? Why not unbridled excess? If there are no gods of the punishing variety, why, why not be dissipated in you know, a drunken stupor. What's what's the answer from Lucretius? Well, I think I, I mean, Lucretius has a lot to say about one of the ways you achieve that ataraxia is by ridding yourself of useless desires. Okay, and right, and it puts you in control of your own being. Rather, is if you you know give yourself over to drunkenness, you are acceding control to the substance to something else, and that is 
that's at odds with this this kind of this inner this inner peace. Self control then is a kind of an equilibrium that you have to maintain. Right, right. It's, it's the mark of being a mature mind. Exactly. So if you acquiesce to drink too much drink, you're you're not going to be in ataraxia. Exactly right. And here again, I see another overlap with uh, in Buddhist thought. So at the center of a lot of Buddhist thought is dealing with desires, kind of particularly kind of useless desires. Mm-hmm. You know, recognizing that that life is replete with suffering, and what the the best way to deal with that is by ridding yourself of, of desire for status, for power, for food, for drink. Um, I think there's a lot there in concert with, with Epicureanism. Hmm. Yeah. So does Lucretius deal with the problem of pain? Well, not not really. I don't, Not in a way that explains it. I, I think he says that, I think he's making the argument that, you know, if there are gods, and if there are gods in, in charge, I mean, that last line is, retiring to the deserts for furious practice with a missile that often passes by the guilty, and destroys the unoffending and undeserving. So when Zeus hurls a lightning bolt, it's indiscriminate in some ways. Yes. The wrong person gets it. Right, right. So, I mean, I think he's he's kind of using kind of that notion of the problem of pain, that the, this idea that, you know, this, this really wonderful person was struck down, and this guy that everybody knows is a, is a, is a, is a scalawag, is, is living the life of Riley. Isn't that evidence that no one's at the wheel? So many metaphors. But, a scallywag. Who live in the life of Riley? Yeah, who is there's who no is one, Riley? No one at the wheel. Yeah. You got me three there. <laughs> I think I know what a scallywag is. Yes, it's something my grandma used to call me. Right. I don't know who the Riley life is. of Riley is. Uh, Riley, whoever he is, he's living a great Some life. Some really lucky fellow. Yes, exactly. Uh, or gal. Yeah. And no one's at the wheel. Right. I think the Epicurean account of of pain is that pain is caused when you have the the right kind of desire, but it's not being satisfied. Mm. And so there are both static and dynamic pleasures in an Epicurean system. Okay. So static pleasure is, uh, it's not when you rub your hand across a balloon. It's when you are in a state that's undisturbed. The kinetic pleasure is the process by which your need is satisfied. So when I'm drinking water or I'm drinking Coke Zero, you're always walking around with a bottle of Coke Zero. Diet Coke. I don't like the Coke Zero. You don't like the Coke Zero? Always walking around with a bottle of... Diet Coke attached yes. to your Coke holster. Uh, you're waiting to have that drink. When you have it, then it's a kinetic pleasure. Yes. It's the, the active satisfaction. But when you're not craving a Diet Coke, Diet Cherry Coke? Just Diet Coke. Vanilla, lemon, don't, orange? Don't, don't throw something in there. It's just plain old yes. Diet. That's the static pleasure. You're, you're sated. You don't need no more. I see. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that okay. a lot. Yeah, and but and to uh, kind of connect it more broadly here is that there's no need for the gods for any of that. Mm-hmm. That's 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 all within your own control. Okay, right. So we have the gods here often doing their own thing, and uh, they're not punishing wrongdoers. No, 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 no. It's it's he just finds it all ridiculous, and he also says that you know. If the universe indeed is immeasurable, as I have already established several times in my work this far, he says with a little bit of impatience, Lucretius does. He's getting a little. He's getting a little grumpy, <laughs> right? But he says, like, "Who could hold the rudder on all of that? Right? Who could be everywhere at once? Yeah. You can't." So he has a little bit of an intellectual problem with the concept of an omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent deity, right? And he's not the only one. You know, there are strands of the Christian tradition, strands I vehemently reject. Mm-hmm which call into question the Christian God's omniscience and omnipresence. Hmm. Is it really the case that God knows every proposition which is related to another proposition? Because the number of propositions is supposedly infinite. Yes. Because every time you have a proposition, it has a relation to all of those previous propositions, which itself establishes a relation that then has to relate to all the other relations, you see, and it's it's potentially infinite. Well, isn't God infinite? Yeah, so it's not a problem. You're saying, right, right. <laughs> We're on the same page. Yes, right. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, yeah. But that is that is part of the issue, right? right. It just seems. Be- some people say it seems below the 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 goodness of an all powerful God that he is. He's always maintaining all these propositional relations. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a lack of um, reverence and imagination. Right. But it is a it is a common thing to say. Interesting. Yeah. But Luc- Lucretius can't. He can't fathom. The kind of the notion of an of an omniscient, omnipresent deity. Correct. Right? He's working from the very human deities from the in the classical pantheon. Well, and reinterpreting them along materialist lines. Right. Right. They're there. They they have divine bodies made of tiny little fine gossamer. I like that word, gossamer divine atoms. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Is there any comfort then in a life that has no fixed or transcendent meaning? I mean, this is one of the problems that I personally have with kind of this idea that I don't exactly see where the comfort comes from when it's someone saying there is nothing beyond what you can see, touch, taste, and, and, and hear, and, and, and feel. So that's going to fill you with a kind of Ex- Existential dread. Right. Right. It's if, if there is no meaning to what we're doing here that's you know even the if i can't grasp it even mm. if it's beyond me but to kind of this this this, uh, this belief that there is transcendent meaning to all of this i find that very comforting right but this idea that lucas says no that's all that's in some ways adding to your fear except that death is just a um uh, is a is a final end mm-hmm. um annihilation annihilation is is that supposed to bring me ataraxia i don't I don't quite get that myself. No, I don't either. And of yeah. course, the Apostle Paul deals with this very question, right? When he says, you know, if there is no resurrection, then let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Right. Which is maybe a caricature of Epicureanism, but it's pretty close. Right. You know, it's in the same arena. Right. Uh, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. There, mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing left. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Well, we got to get on to book three, don't we? We do. Otherwise, we're going to be another 12-parter. Oh, right? we can't do that. <laughs> yeah. So, well, let's, let's dig in to the, the beginning of book three. Well, as we start book three, Jeff, I, I can't help but ask if it'd be all right, by your leave, if I may, if you will, if I read a little bit of the Latin here. Of course, it's a good because thing Because to... it mentions our our favorite coffee brew right here, our favorite blend of coffee right at the beginning. Oh, then we have to. Okay, so right. this is book three from the beginning. A tenebris. Ah, oh. A tenebris tantis tam clar rex tolere lumen. Qui primus patuisti in lustrans camoro vitae, te sequer o grai aigentis decus inquetuis nunc, one more, ficta pedum po no presti, presis vestigia signis. Very nice. And I can, I can, there's a, even a little bit more spring in your step. I can hear it. Can you hear even it? Even from the first round that you read in the Latin, which was, which was good, you're, you're, you're picking it up. All right, yep. all right. All right, Dave, uh, read us the English translation of that, would you? Yeah, so this is going to be not the Smith, but uh, actually another Hackett title. This is the Walter Englert, and this is a a verse translation. Excellent. From shadows so sheer, you were the first who was able to cast such clear light and illuminate all that makes life worthwhile. It is you I follow, O glory of the Greek race, and now in the tracks you have laid down, I fix my firm footprints. He's talking about Epicurus here. He loves the guy. He loves the guy. He loves the guy. It's like you and me with Ross King That's not right. <laughs> too many episodes ago. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the language that he uses about him is is almost like a, a, a prayer. Yes, it is. He uses divine language for, for Epicurus. He's the one who, who made everything clear, laid out the path. Threaded the needle, solved the riddle, pushed the envelope, maxed the extreme, whatever we want to say. Yeah, you could, yeah exactly. Right. He's the one who solved the problem. Yep. Well, and the extravagant praise goes on there at the beginning of book three. It does. The praise that Lucretius gives his buddy Epicurus. Can you read a little bit of the Smith? Yes. Yes. So he goes on. You are our father and the discoverer of truth. You supply us with fatherly precepts. And from your pages, illustrious master, like the bees which in flowerful veils sip each bloom, we feed on each golden saying, golden and ever most worthy of eternal life. As soon as your... Philosophy begins to proclaim the true nature of things. Revealed by your divine mind, the terrors of the mind are dispelled. The walls of the world depart, and I see what happens throughout the whole void. Plainly visible are the gods in their majesty, and their calm remains which, buffeted by no wind, sprinkled by no storm cloud shower, sullied with no white fall of snow crystallized by biting frost, are ever pavilioned by a cloudless ether that smiles with widespread flood of radiance. Hmm. That's really some incredible poetry. It's right. beautiful, it beautiful is. lines. I love the epic simile here. Uh, illustrious master, your pages, like the bees which in flowerful veils sip each bloom. Yes. Nice, right. nice epic simile. And no, I wonder if Virgil picked up on on that. He's got that wonderful passage in his Georgics where he he's focusing on this colony of bees. Right. That's book four. Yes. Yep. And um, sees them as a kind of a model for human society. Yeah, I think, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think that both are drawing from another source. I think I think both are drawing from kind of a Greek source and they're they're continuing the mm. I think. Yeah. I don't know. It may be one just because there's that seemingly kind of clear allusion to Lucretius in the Georgics that Correct. maybe there are these other kind of nods and winks along the way too. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah, no doubt, no doubt. 
And it says that your philosophy blew apart the walls of the world. Mm. The walls of the world depart. So there's, there's no more limitation on our understanding. Right. And uh, Epicurus, according to Lucretius, expands our minds so extensively. We grasp everything. Right. No more sorrow, no more fear of death. Yes. No more religion. Yeah, exactly. Can I take us to, to the East uh, kind of briefly one more Go time? ahead, yeah. Another thing that, that just jumped out at me was he says, you know, plainly, plainly visible are the gods and their majesty and their calm realms, which buffeted by no wind. The concept of that Buddhist concept of nirvana, hmm. which translates quite literally as the place of where there is no wind. Really? Right. Um, Certainly not Michigan. No, no, there's no nirvana here. No. Right, right. That would be Seattle, right? Is that I, where nirvana started? I, I think so. Yes. I mostly know Nirvana through uh, Weird Al. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, what was it, what was his uh, his parody of "Smells Like Teen Spirit"? Smells like Nirvana. Smells like Nirvana. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> and you know, as we've often said, um, I believe that's the year the music died. Right, the year that Nirvana arose. I think you've said that. Well, you haven't said it. You don't like it and don't agree with it. But I don't. But you're mistaken. Really? You know, music was doing great until the rise of Nirvana, and then everything just fell apart. Nirvana was a necessary corrective to the ridiculousness that hair band metal had become. Oh, yes. Jeff. Okay. But at least there was virtuosity in the musicianship and the singing. It had gone too far. It's like sometimes the fewer notes you play, the better. Right. It was a so like in the movie Amadeus. It's too many notes. Too many notes. Oh. Too many notes. I know this is an this argu- is going to ruin the entire <laughs> podcast as well as our friendship. Oh no! Because there are just some things that you are so wrong about. Okay. Well, yes. Well, um, I can see that your 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 dark mood has returned. Yes, it has. Right. Sorry, I, but by bringing up Nirvana, right? Can I can I can I return? Continue. To the, okay. Continue. Right. So this notion of Nirvana, like achieving Nirvana, it's it. The idea is it's, it's beyond human description, right? But I think there's a one way I've heard it explained is that nirvana is the state of kind of seeing, having kind of a, a, a view of the eternal all at once. You kind of you understand inherently and intuitively kind of how everything fits together. You have mm. kind of this, this God's eye view of, of the universe of everything. Yeah, but th- this is what souls get in the Republic, in the myth of Ur. Well, definitely. Plato's already done this. He has. Derivative. But, but, but he's, all, but I mean, look, he would say, he would say souls schmoles, I believe, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> souls are not immortal. They, they, they die too. But, no, they're made of soul atoms. But it, it struck me is that what Epicurus offers is this kind of, nirvana view of everything is that and the, the buddhist idea that you know the the ultimate zone the ultimate state of peace is a similar kind of thing where you you see everything as it all fits together in an eternal instant hmm? yeah i don't know it's it, a very well said it's a very helpful explanation yeah not sure how i feel about it <laughs> what about the immortality of the soul the immortality of the soul. So, I mean, he goes on. This is um, also in book three. You want to read this, the Smith translation here? Uh, I can, sure. This is getting us near, getting us near to the end of book three, isn't it? This it is. Line 600 and so forth. Yep. Uh, moreover, if the substance of the spirit is immortal and retains sentient power when separated from our body, presumably we must assume that it is provided with the five senses. In no other way can we visualize spirits roaming in the infernal realms of Acheron. That is why painters and writers of generations past have represented spirits as endowed with senses. But, divorced from the body, the soul cannot have either eyes or nose or hands or tongue or ears, and therefore cannot possess either sentience or life. So he finds the whole idea of a, of a, of a soul just kind of ridiculous. Well, and I find this explanation kind of ridiculous, it's weak. frankly. It's, it's, it's really it's bogus. Weak. It is bogus. Yep. The, the thing, he's, he's saying basically, well, look, uh, if the soul survives, it's not in a body, so... All of the things that the poets describe about the afterlife are all made up. Well, okay, but do you lack all imagination, Lucretius? Yeah, yeah. He, no, this, nobody's saying that's exactly what it's like. Right. It's a it's a suggestion. Yeah, I'm I'm going to be upset about this. I guess it's kind of like uh, the the Christian representations of both paradise and um, inferno, mm-hmm. right? Oftentimes people fault those, they'll, they'll fault Dante's representations and such, and say, oh, you know, this was all borrowed from pagan literature, or this was all borrowed from um, other places, and therefore it's invalid. But I don't think the, those poets and artists think that that's what it really is. Right. It's meant to be suggestive of what it could be. Right, exactly right. Yes. So you're with me on this? I'm totally with you on it. This is where Luki needs to loosen up a little bit. <laughs> you know, return to the garden and have another drink. So, so you're not with me on Nirvana. No, 
I'm a, I'm a Nirvana fan. Okay. Yes. But you are with me on this. Yes, I am. All right. All right. Okay. I can see you're, you're cheering up a little bit. No. no. <laughs> okay. What about next? The next part, right? The punishment. The punishment. Right. So there's... Um, He's, it's because all of this is nonsense in Lucretia's view, there's no reason to fear death. There's okay. No, there's no, there's no hell that awaits you to punish you. This is John Lennon. John, yeah, exactly. Oh. Imagine there's no heaven. David, if we talked about my, my top five worst songs of all time. You don't like any song. I hate that song. You said this on the air okay, already. Right, okay, never but imagine there's no heaven. Right. Uh, I wonder, I wonder if you can. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. You're going to read from Smith there? Yes, I am. But this is the very end of book three, is it? The very end of book three, yes, where he talks about the futility of, of fearing or, or mourning, uh, uh, fearing your own death and mourning the death of others. Okay, drop it on us. All right, so in this in this passage, um, uh, Lucretius is, he's, uh, in the, the part I'm about to read, he kind of, he tackles about uh, what I take to be um, kind of a typical, uh, kind of fearful understanding of, of death. Right. So he says... Never again, mourners say, will your household receive you with joy. Never again will the best of wives welcome you home. Never again will your dear children race for the prize of your first kisses and touch your heart with pleasure too profound for words. Never again can you enjoy prosperous circumstances or be a bulwark to your dependents. Wretched man, they cry, one wretched damnable day has dispossessed you of every one of life's many precious gifts. Hmm. But he says it's all... Well, but that's a beautiful picture of the joys of family life exactly and right. what it means to be a person, a human being. Right. But he's saying that that's all nonsense. Okay. Right. That the, the, he's saying there's a, there's a, I guess he's saying there's a way to, to live in which you don't miss your family members or, that, or that's kind of a meaningless way to, a, to think about death. I don't know. Well, he goes on to say, they omit to add no craving for these things remains with you any longer. Mm-hmm. If only they fully grasped this fact and expressed their feelings accordingly, they would relieve their minds of great anguish and fear. I imagine another saying, you for your part are wrapped in the sleep of death and will remain so for the rest of time, exempt from all painful sufferings. Hmm. Not persuasive. No. You know, annihilation, you know, total ceasing of existence has never persuaded me that it's something that you can say is a better state because there's nothing there to benefit. Right. If How is it better for someone not to exist at all? Yeah. I don't... I don't get that. I don't get it's that either. It's always boggled my mind. Right. That just that pure finding joy in annihilation. Right. Right. <laughs> How do you get there? And what a poignant, <laughs> lovely picture of what it means to to be a family man. Never again will the best of wives welcome you home and your children kiss you and such. Right. This is great. Yes. And he's saying when you're dead, you won't miss any of that because you won't exist. Oh, that's that's comforting. That's comforting. <laughs> exactly right. And I think it also. Uh, Lucretia seems to kind of dismiss any any notion of meaning in grieving or suffering. Right? I mean, for those who remain. For those who remain. Right. right? Um, that for him, it's needless fear. It's pointless. You just want to get rid of it. Right. right. Rather than it kind of, you know, channeling you to something better or it's greater. It's so unnatural. It is so unnatural. When a loved one dies, you're just supposed to, mm. well, okay, it's off to the game. Right. right. Right, right, right. Let's go shopping. Let's go buy furniture or something like that. It's yeah. just. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't get it. Right. It reminds me of the end of Plato's Apology, where Socrates has been condemned to death. Right. And he's musing about what, what the afterlife might be like. Reminds you by contrast. By contrast. Because Socrates' well, view is so different. Well, it, on the one hand, yes, but, um, but also, no. He, I mean, Socrates, remember, he muses that. He says, well, we don't really know it. It's on the other side. But he says, it might be like a, just a dreamless sleep. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess a kind of annihilation that Jesus says, you know, and who hasn't enjoyed, you know, think about... You know the the best night night sleep you've had. And I, first of all, I've had none of those. <laughs> and but, secondly, yeah. if I knew I was never going to wake up, right, it would be terrifying. It would be. And I think Socrates quickly moves on. He says, "I think we get what Socrates hopes it will be is that I get to see all these people exactly from the past." Now, right? the reason that you enjoy sleep so much is because you enjoy life. I would say, yeah. if you don't enjoy life, you can't enjoy sleep because right. that's the prospect of the cessation. You know, not the rejuvenation of what you like, right? But I mean, Jeff, you want to wake up and turn on Nirvana again, I do. right? Man, I'm going to, when I get home, when I get home, I'm going to crank up Nevermind and it's going to be great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but if you, if you didn't have that coming, you wouldn't want to take your little nap. Exactly. Exactly right. Okay. Yep. Yeah, maybe, I don't think he's borrowing from Socrates, but I think, I, saw, I see in that Socrates musing about that kind of eternal sleep, a little bit of Lucretius's annihilation. Oh, here. for sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, he so. gives three options, right? Right. 
So we got this little bit from the Georgics that you threw in here. Yeah. Which I love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. want to read the Latin part or the English? Three for three. Get the, the Latin hat trick today. So, okay. Yeah. Felix qui potuit re rum cognoscur causas atque matusam niset inexorabila fatum subiecit pedibus trepetum quacarantis awari, which is a, it's book two, yes. right? Uh, 490 and following. Yes, yes, yes. And so I will read you uh, the A.S. Klein. All right, let's have it. Happy is he who is able to know the causes of everything and places under his feet all fear and relentless destiny and the roaring of greedy Acheron. Oh, yeah. Yep. So you're trampling down fear of death. Yes. Got some Epicurean elements there in our man Virgil. Yep. Okay. Right, so, uh, a, a clear nod towards uh, towards Lucretius. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So there's no need to wait for hell, Lucretius says, because? Nope. Because hell is now. You mean when I'm listening to Nirvana? <laughs> Do you, do you remember the? Uh, I don't even. Go, do you remember the, the Simpsons episode, the the Odyssey parody, uh-huh. you see where uh, he goes down the uh, Homer as Odysseus is on the river Styx, and they're playing the Styx song. Oh yeah, oh my lady, and he goes, oh, this truly is hell. <laughs> That's a good song. <laughs> when I'm with you, I'm smiling. Is that how it goes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good song. It's not a great. Is song. Jack Blades in that? In no, the, no, no, no. Not at that time. No, no. He was never in Sticks. Never. No. Are he, you sure? He played with Tommy Shaw, who was the guitarist in Sticks. Right. Okay, that's the connection. Yes, exactly. Shaw Blades. Shaw Blades. Right? All right. Yeah, they were also in Damn Yankees together. Mm-hmm. The Nuge. Right. Yes. Who is uh, a native Michigander? Yes, yes, he is. All right. So you want to read this last quote? We get, we're getting a little bit. Uh, I'd little like bit... to blame you, but we're getting a little far afield here. Okay. So again, the Smith translation. Next, let me assure you that all the punishments that tradition locates in the abyss of Acheron actually exist in our life. No tormented Tantalus as in the story fears the huge rock suspended over him in the air, paralyzed with vain terror. But in life, mortals are oppressed by groundless fear of the gods and dread the fall of the blow that chance may deal to any of them. No Titius lying in Acheron has his inside devoured by winged creatures. He goes on to talk about you no know, Sisyphus uh, and, and the like. He says that's none of that's waiting for you on the other side. Um, but people striving for power and competing with each other and backstabbing each other, that's that that's the hell and that hell is now. Well, I'm unpersuaded, honestly. Yeah. Things are bad maybe, but I, I think that the, the punishments that Virgil and the other the others depict, as well as the punishments described in uh, the Christian scriptures, they seem a lot worse. Yeah, well, yeah, true to enough. To be frank. True enough. And in fact, it, we've talked in the last episode about, you know, Lucretius is guilty of maybe cherry picking. Right. And so he goes to the kind of these extreme examples. And if we compare it to something like in Odyssey Book 11, the vast majority of the souls that this is encountered there are not being tortured in this kind of way. No, they're in the DMV. They're in the DMV. <laughs> Listening to Nirvana. <laughs> yes, a lounge elevator version of Nirvana. Okay. Right, yeah. But no Elysian fields, no, no islands of the blessed. He leaves a lot out. No Tolkien, Numenor, things like that. No, exactly. So it's a little bit, he, he uses the extreme example as a kind of straw man, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah. You know, there's been a great renaissance in Stoicism Has in, there really? in the last couple of decades. Yes. And uh, we should talk about Stoicism at some point uh, in the area of my study. But right. there hasn't been a similar renaissance in Epicureanism. Hmm. I think there's been an ab- abiding devotion to ex- excess, right? But that's not that's really the, Epicureanism. A, a, a false Epicureanism, right. right? Well, I think Jeff. Yeah. Um, speaking of excess, this episode's gone pretty long. It's gone pretty long. We got to wrap it up. We got to wrap it up. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's get out of here. What do we got to do before we get out of here? Um, I believe you have to thank some people. I got to thank some people. Yes, and we we have to talk about the Moss Method. Yes, we do. I'm so glad you remembered. Yes. <laughs> So we're running our back-to-school sale, 15% off. Go to mossmethod.com. We're recording on a Friday. Audience doesn't know that until now. But uh, this morning we held our office hours. We had seven people show up, seven seven folks show up. Uh, If you get into the Moss Method, you get to hang out with me on Fridays for an hour and ask me any Greek questions that you want. Nice. So this morning we talked about Moss, the laws of Draco. We talked about Philippians chapter 2, the first five verses of that. Uh, chapter. We also talked a little bit about um, Aeschylus's Agamemnon. So it was a it was a rich time together. Excellent. So go to mossmethod.com, get fifteen percent off on our back to school sale. Check it out. Excellent. Well, we got to thank uh, Mishka. Yep, as she does. always. She does wonderful work. Yeah, so thank you. Uh, as always, we got thanks to Ken Tamplin and Scott Vinzen for the great music you yes. hear uh, at the front and at the back. And in the middle. In the middle as well. Right. Yep. It's all over the place. Yep. Uh, Scott has a new album coming out with a single called Trouble, and his, uh, 
If you're on Spotify, you might want to look up his instrumental album called uh, No Words. Mm. It's brilliant bluesy rock stuff. Very nice. Very cool. Um, so thanks to those guys. Really generous. Yes, for them absolutely. To, to let us use their music. Yep. So, so Jeff, what should our listeners do about the calling and the subscribing and the... Well, they should they should subscribe. Okay. Right? Um, and leave us a review on the platform, your favorite platform that you listen to us on. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a, a message to either at Dave at AdNauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or to me, Jeff at AdNauseum.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to respond. Uh, don't hesitate with ideas for, for future episodes. Keep those messages coming. Yeah, you might also pick up uh, an ad nauseum sticker, right? For $3.99, go to Lurch with Merch on our site. Got a lot of housekeeping items to run through here. <laughs> but uh, $3.99, you get a signed card from Dr. Jeff and mm-hmm. from Dr. Dave, and you get a nice sticker to show people you are taking in the classics. And keeping them down. That's right. That's right. So next week, we're going to wrap up our look at Lucretius. It's going to be the last one. Yeah, yep. books five and six, uh, maybe a little bit of four. Wrap it up. Wrap it up. And Dave, you have the gustatory party shot this week. Yeah, I got to tell you, this is not one I'm especially enthusiastic about. It is a study in understatement. (laughs) This is by a woman named B. Wilson from her book, First Bite, How We Learn to Eat. She's a a British chef and personality. Apparently, she's very successful, very good at what she does. This statement, however, is a little bit of uh, an understatement. Here it goes. Eating is about food. Oh, you don't say, B. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. (laughs) 